good to be with you again. I was here last year, as uh, uh, Father David said, and um, I thank you very much for the invitation again this year. Um, it's kind of a twofer for me because we have quite a few chaplains in this area, and uh, it's fun coming in. I was able to take quite a few of them out for dinner last night, um, and two of our chaplains are resident here with you, one who just read the gospel, um, and the other one, where is he, her husband, sitting over, I think, somewhere there, okay. So, they actually belong to us, okay, you know, but, <laughs> but we're, we're glad to loan them to you for a little while. <laughs> so, I've known them, known them both for many, many years. Um, yeah, it was fun flying in, and I was, I was telling uh, uh, Father uh, Peter, right, and that I was glad when I saw the Pentagon, I was able to say, I'm not going there, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm coming here, I'm done with that. Uh, I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't also uh, thank uh, Bishop uh, John Guernsey, uh, who uh, also extended an invitation to come and fill his role, this is properly his role as the Bishop of the Diocese, um, because, and, and the way Anglicans do things, we don't mess around as bishops in other bishops' backyards, you know, don't just show up uh, and start preaching. Uh, but so I, I'm here at the, at the request and permission of Bishop John Guernsey, good friend. Uh, we both sit together in the College of Bishops for the Anglican Church in North America. Uh, and um, the last time I saw him was at a consecration of the newest bishop for the Reformed Episcopal Church in the Southeast. And he was so excited to tell me that you finally purchased the property. Great, congratulations. I know last year I was here and it was kind of uncertain whether you're going on an exodus or not. Um, but in a manner of speaking, <clears throat> profoundly so, we're all on an exodus, right? Out of Egypt uh, to the promised land. So again, thank you for your welcome. In the name of the one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. I understand that you've been in a sermon series, Images of the Savior. You've been considering how the different images used in the Old Testament anticipated the coming of our Savior. Today, a king like David is our focus, appropriate for the Sunday, which is Christ the King Sunday, here at Christ the King Church, and on this final Sunday of the church year. Next week begins the new year with Advent, and so we finish with a king like David. These images of the Savior have long beguiled me, so much so that when in seminary I majored in Semitics and Old Testament theology so that I could better understand the use of the Old Testament in the New. I studied at a seminary famous for its grammatical historical approach to exegesis, that is, uh, the science of interpreting the scripture. This approach rests on the assumption that the biblical text carries only one meaning namely the one intended by the author and plainly read. The approach is modeled on the natural sciences, however. So strictly speaking, the Holy Spirit is, is excluded from providing any other interpretation. This approach also fails, I believe, in that it does not look at the unity between the two testaments. Um, so as Anglicans, we approach scripture in a much broader way, most of us do, and seek through reason and the guidance of the Holy Spirit and with the guardrails set up by our liturgy and our confessional creeds, keep us straight, um, 
we, uh, we apply all scripture to our personal lives. Not just reading a historic account and gleaning some general principles that are good to apply. All scripture, as St. Paul wrote, is both inspired and useful to us for our growth in godly virtue. So I've learned when interpreting scripture to look to the church fathers, those closest to the apostles and trained by them or their immediate successors, those bishops, for guidance in interpretation. And I rather think they got it right. I think the apostles were good teachers. They wrote the New Testament after all. They got that right. Uh, and so I think that what they passed on to succeeding generations of bishops and leaders of the church was pretty close to right as well. So I come to understand that the church fathers had a very particular way of reading the Old Testament. The only scripture that they possessed at the time for the first two, three hundred years. Uh, St. Irenaeus is highly representative of some of the fathers. He would affirm that the proper way to read the Old Testament is with this question in mind. How does this passage speak about Christ? Right? From Genesis through the end of the Old Testament, how does this passage speak about Christ? This means that there is definitely more than one way to interpret the passage. They would search under the influence of the Holy Spirit a more complete understanding of Scripture, viewing all Scripture through the lens of what they knew about Jesus. Jesus, as it were, is to be found on every single page of Scripture from Genesis through Revelation. Our job, to put it like that, is to, as this collect, this prayer puts it, is more than just to read or skim the surface meaning of Scripture. The collect goes like this. <clears throat> Blessed Lord, who caused all Holy Scripture to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. And so there you go, as part of our Anglican tradition, one of the most famous prayers that we have, penned by Archbishop Cranmer. Um, his point was that the purpose of reading and digesting and meditating upon Scripture is that we might come closer contact with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is not to say, however, that we fancifully inject all manner of meetings into the text, but we carefully and reasonably are, and are carefully and reasonably attentive to all of Scripture and the Holy Spirit, that is, Scripture interpreting Scripture and the Holy Spirit, and in line with what the church ancient and historic believe. Um, and as I said, following our liturgy. If it falls outside of our liturgy or our common confessional creeds, we go, stop. You know, we're not going there. Um, in, in, in point, we make up nothing new, we don't chase after novelty, but we dig for gold in these pages of Scripture. And that gold is Jesus himself. So, Jeremiah is not simply referring to events long ago in some sort of way uh, to be an example to us, but we are invited to linger over the text, meditating on it, mining what the fathers called the treasure that is hid there, Jesus. So the shepherd and kingly imagery points not just to Israel's time, but to our time, to the church, to this church, where Christ the King reigns over, which he has, and over which he has appointed good shepherds. 
And thus Jeremiah is the perfect lens through which to view, to view across history to Jesus' death and, and crucifixion. We understand that the king was reigning, as our gospel message has it, even as he had those nails driven through his hands and feet. And in offering himself, he was also the good shepherd who gave his life for his sheep. Really, which makes perfect sense when you think of the road to Emmaus event. Some of you may be familiar with it. It's found in Luke 24, just after our gospel reading for today. And I invite you to, to read through that later. I'll tell part of it. It's a compelling story and defines for us how we ought to approach reading the Old Testament. <clears throat> Jesus himself defines this approach that we should ask. How does this passage speak about Christ? So this is what was said. Um, remember, this is the day of his resurrection. He appeared to the ladies, the, the women at the, at the, uh, at the tomb, <clears throat> and he disappears from them. They go back and go, he's risen. Then uh, he probably appeared to St. Peter two or three times during the day privately. And now uh, we're uh, towards evening, and two of the disciples, Cleopas and an unnamed disciple, I kind of think it's his wife, and that's an interesting thing to think of. We could unravel that about how um, Jesus was emphasizing the holy matrimony right on the day of his resurrection. It's, but I'll leave it, leave it for others to, to discuss that. Um, so he approaches them, and they're on their way to Emmaus, nine, ten miles from Jerusalem. They're, they're amscraying out of Jerusalem. They're getting away. The other disciples are hiding out in the upper room. And so while they were talking and discussing together, the gospel says, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is your conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. You can just imagine that. Hmm. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days, like, how stupid are you? I mean, really? You don't know what's going on? I mean, that's what he's saying, right? And he said to them, innocently, what things? And he said to them, concerning Jesus of Nazareth. And then they complained a little bit more in the passage. Uh, I invite you to read it. And finally, Jesus says to them, oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe, all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and Genesis and all the prophets, beginning with them, and he went through the entire Old Testament, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, that's what the Bible says, all the emphasis added by me, all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Now, after Jesus revealed himself to them in the breaking of bread in Holy Eucharist, uh, and departed, they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? In some, Jesus taught these two disciples, and by extension, the apostle, to see that the Old Testament is, in reality, a recapitulation of the birth, life, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus, nothing else and nothing more. From Genesis all the way through Revelation in our current scripture. Now, wouldn't it make sense that one of those scriptures Jesus explained to them would be the Jeremiah passage we just read from today? It's rather significant, and the church has deemed it so important that it's 
it wants it to be read and, and, and considered on this Christ the King Sunday, the last Sunday of the calendar year for us. Um, I, I think, you know, how he, Jesus, was the righteous branch uh, raised up from David. I believe the church fathers would have said, absolutely. And Cleopas and his friend got that exact point. Wouldn't that have been a cool Bible study to be a part of as you're walking along the, the road to Emmaus? So Jeremiah uses the imagery of Exodus from Egypt and the future promised return of those Jews held captive in Babylon and pronounces woe upon those shepherds who destroyed and scattered the sheep of his pasture. So the sweep of the passage ranges across time and the pages of the Old Testament and across the salvation history of Israel from Moses to Jesus on the cross as our reading from the gospel shows today. But Jeremiah doesn't stop there. His vision extends to the reign of a future shepherd and king who, like David, would establish a righteous reign. And my point is at his resurrection, he established that reign. So, let's join with Aaron S. How does this passage speak about Christ? Well, there is a definite note that the Lord God will raise up for King David a righteous branch, that is a good shepherd, who will shepherd the sheep of his flock that this is the Messiah whom we know to be Jesus, well, that's pretty much clear to us on this side of Jesus' resurrection, right? I don't think there's any argument there. And coupled with the New Testament account of the righteous anger of Jesus as he took a whip and he cleared out the temple precincts, making that a house of prayer for all, not just Jews, we get this echo of Jeremiah writing that the good shepherd will clean house and then gather the remnant back to Jerusalem, to the church, which remnant included converted Gentiles and many of us here. All of this is a piece with King David's zeal for the house of the Lord, that David would not sleep until he found a place for the Lord. Even a cursory reading of the Psalms reveals David's zeal and the righteous branch coming after him would be the same. They were both righteous shepherds and kings. They took care of their people. Here's a very short portion of Psalm 50. It says, Oh, be joyful in the Lord, all ye lands. Serve the Lord with gladness and come before his presence with a song. Be ye sure that the Lord, he is God. It is he that hath made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. I wonder if Jesus would have also used Psalm 50 to explain himself to Cleopas and his friend. What would they have been thinking when Jesus spoke to them about himself in the scriptures? Well, we know it hit them hard. Did not our hearts burn within us? They said to each other. They were lost, alone, confused, blinded to the truth that was walking along the road with them. Um, then Jesus spoke to them about himself from the scriptures. But it took the celebration, interesting enough, of Holy Eucharist and the taking, the blessing, the breaking and giving of bread they're in that home. Exact same words that we use in the liturgy of the Eucharist that we take, we, we uh, bless, we thank, and, and we break and give to you. Same, same words. But it took the, that celebration of the Holy Eucharist, the breaking of bread in that home in Emmaus, to put on what I call resurrection glasses, right? They, they, they go, oh, now we understand in the breaking of bread what the scriptures mean and how it teaches of Jesus. And such is the gift of understanding passed on to us this day when we gather to hear his word and share his body and blood 
and infallible means of grace. My point here, well, when we read scripture, we come into contact with our Savior. For in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, St. John writes. And that contact changes us. Our hearts burn within us and produces godly virtue. Since it is our aim to share more deeply in the life of God, virtue is the very aim of biblical interpretation. It's not merely a science to understand a historical event. It's to come in contact with God himself. And such virtue, that strength of relationship with God, comes through a deep understanding of God's word. So again, how does this passage speak about Christ? Well, in three ways, at least, I invite you to find more. First of all, there is the promise of one who will come. A righteous branch will be raised up. The promise is anchored in the promises already given to David. Those are not repeated here, but would certainly be understood by those who heard Jeremiah. And God keeps his promises. The resurrection puts paid to those promises. Second, this righteous branch would be a king, who we know is Christ the king. And unlike the wicked shepherds, this coming king would, quote, deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. What a great hope. Third, the Lord will raise up shepherds to care for the remnant. Two things here. God is faithful, and there will always be those, even in troubled times, who remain faithful to him. The remnant, now the church, this church gathered here, the remnant. God will not abandon us when we, like the thief on the cross, turn to him in faith. Also, God will again appoint shepherds, good shepherds, to care for his people, for us, to assist us in growing in the faith. To sum this up, we must learn to see Christ here in this Jeremiah passage. It's not just a recounting of a historical promise to Judah and Israel. It is for us gathered here this morning. It goes beyond a mere link with David. This is vitally important, brothers and sisters, especially in these tumultuous times, both within and without the church. Our world is led by unfaithful, unscrupulous political and religious leaders, but we have a king. And we have a king who has appointed faithful shepherds for us. Those apostles and those bishops they appointed and those priests and deacons ordained by them to care for the church until he comes again. And that is the message on this last Sunday of the church here, this Sunday of Christ the King. The last word to us is that he who is called the Lord our righteousness is both our good shepherd and king and will lead us to safety and is faithful to you and me when all others are not. And then like the thief, we will be with him. Amen.